Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio. I'm Kate Woda. I'm pleased today to share a cancer immunotherapy debate from the IO360 2020 Summit on the topic of in situ vaccinations versus systemic neoepitope vaccinations. Participants included Dr. Charles Drake of Columbia University Medical Center and Dr. Karen Use of Gritstone Oncology. The debate was moderated by Ashtika Gunwardin of SunTrust Robinson Humphrey. Hi, everyone. Okay, so we have a fun debate planned here. Um, these two started out as friends. They might not be here as friends once this debate is done, but it's going to be in situ vax versus neoantigen approach here. So let's first have um, Karen Juice from Gritstone. And on this corner, we have Chuck Drake from Columbia. We want a dirty fight, okay? Uh, <laughs> all right, let's start up. Karen, why don't you give us your, your two-minute pitch on that? So my name is Karen Yost. I'm Chief Scientific Officer at Critstone, generation of neoantigen-specific uh, vaccine. Um, let's dial back the clock 20 years ago when we developed cancer vaccines. We really didn't know what to deliver in the cancer vaccines, which antigens. So what we selected is, for example, PSA, PSMA, probably very good target for bispecifics. As we learned yesterday, the challenge for a vaccine is we have to break immune tolerance because these are self-antigens. At the same time, the vaccine platforms that we selected were peptides, proteins, weak vaccine platforms that were, didn't have the power to break this immune tolerance. We didn't have any immune modulation at the time. And you know the outcome, failure over failure. In 2014, at the end, Naya Rizvi and Tim Chen discovered that neoantigens are actually targets in patients treated with immune checkpoint modulators, PD-1, CGLA-4, and usually it's found in clinical responders. Finally, we had actually non-self-targets to deliver in cancer vaccines, which reset the clock of cancer vaccine development. At the same time, during the past years, our friends and colleagues in the infectious disease space actually demonstrated the power of viral vector vaccines, driving very, very high CD4 and CD8 T-cell titers uh, against non-self-antigens. And uh, our toolbox is now also filled with immune modulators. So now is the time to actually go into the second era of cancer vaccine development also, uh, location of administration. We want to move away from the tumor and the tumor training lymph node because it's a health microenvironment, a lot of immune suppression, and therefore we go away into the muscle. And that allows us also to give some of the immune modulators locally at low dose to broaden the therapeutic window. All right, Chuck. Karen, my friend. <laughs> Obviously, any tumor reactive T cell worth its salt will have a high affinity for either a neoantigen or for a self-antigen and therefore be in the tumor itself. And where better to activate that T cell than where it lives? We can see the tumors now using um, interventional radiology and use um, advanced technologies uh, including multi-targeted uh, uh, activators to activate the T cells that are in fact specific for cancer where they live in the tumor. This is a proven uh, technology uh, as by the uh, 
FDA approval of a drug which does just that, called TVAC, actually. There is a FDA-approved drug. However, in cancer vaccines, we know there is one, which we heard about for, before, Cepulose LT, which has a relatively weak effect. And yes, there are many new technologies, some of which you, in fact, have invented. And yet, the T cells that are reactive for tumors are within the tumor. Um, the other thing we'd like to point out is that neoantigens are a wonderful concept, and yet we participate in these clinical trials. And we know by, that by the time we send the sample to the sponsor, they make sure it's okay, which sometimes it's not. We send another sample to the sponsor. They sequence it. Sometimes that works. Sometimes that doesn't. Then we wait for them to make the vaccine, and that sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. And by that time, it's usually at least 8 to 12 weeks. By that time, the patient is not only bored but progressing. And I think that uh, the promise of uh, vaccines like that um, is definitely dampened by the logistics that are involved. And so I think that targeting the T-cells where we can see them might be a reasonable, better approach. Jesus, Chuck, you just went right at it, didn't you? <laughs> you told us to be a... <laughs> uh, uh, okay, let's... Uh, let's Karen, let's, let, let's, let's start with you. Um, can you maybe talk us through what are the pros of, uh, of priming in the periphery compared to an in-situ vaccine? As I just mentioned, I think going away from the tumor training lymph node and the tumor, uh, we see very good priming. Uh, we give our vaccines intramuscularly. We know exactly where T cell activation occurs. We can pull them out in primate models. We know exactly when the PD-1 CTLA-4 come up. We give immune modulation local, locally, sub-Q, lowering the dose, opening up the therapeutic window. And this morning, synergistic effects were challenged in non-human primates. We see a huge expansion of the vaccine-induced uh, T cells. I would call this synergistic. Uh, so um, I think uh, vaccination in infectious disease have shown in healthy humans that vaccine training lymph nodes are very powerful. We can then do local immune modulation and highly activated T cell will then traffic and kill the tumor cells. They are also highly polyfunctional if you use non-self antigens. Uh, I used self antigens before we can prime the T-cells, but they are not very polyfunctional. They are poor killers. Jack, what do you, what's your response to that? I, I, I would uh, actually agree um, completely that we have uh, many um, uh, agents that can activate or serve to promote T-cell priming, and that injecting them into the subcutaneous area is just a little bit farther away from the tumor, actually. And so uh, if we can reverse the tolerance of the T cells within the tumor using some of these same agents, and what we're talking about is um, many things, cytokines, uh, blocking CTLA-4 within the tumor microenvironment, um, uh, other uh, agents, uh, TLR agonists, cytokines, um, those T cells within the tumor, I do believe uh, their tolerance can be reversed. And we actually know this is probably true because when we give anti-PD-1 systemically, we do see reversal of tolerance of T cells within In tumors. some patients. In some patients, this I agree, actually. <laughs> so I, I have like one second left. And so I think that we can, in fact, potentially reverse tolerance of T cells within tumors. Okay, well, why don't you, um, <laughs> Chuck, the question to you then. Why don't you, tell us more about why you're a fan of localizing the schmutz into the tumor. Um, <laughs> and can you get that response that you really need? Yeah, it's a very good question. I mean, so, so, you know, the agents that we have in the clinic now, and we have an expert right there, Dr. Weber on melanoma, um, 
made him look up from his uh, eye. <laughs> I, I think that what uh, uh, Dr. You said actually is, is it's clear that in some patients we certainly reverse local tolerance because you see um, uh, tumors shrink. The agents that are in the clinic now or that are FDA approved are just a mere shadow of the multiple techniques and technologies that are moving forward, uh, including um, RNA um, and other um, uh, agents like that. So I think that um, that means that there is a, a chance of reversing. So. Again, I, I, it, we'll talk about this later, and you'll say to me, like, how can you inject? And we'll talk about that later. Okay. Well, you're giving Karen some time here. Yeah. Um, so reverse, I think, I believe uh, that these uh, T cells can be reversed depending on where in their trajectory they are. Uh, we would like to aim to provide therapeutic benefit to uh, most patients, right? So I worked on oncolytics in the past, and really what was frustrating to me at the time, we didn't know antigens for vaccine de development, so oncolytics made sense to me. Destroying the tumor and waiting for the T cell to occur on the other end, which many times didn't occur if you leave melanoma, which is highly immunogenic, T cell activation is very, very difficult to actually uh, trigger with an intratumoral injection. The problem was the heterogeneity, the microenvironment of the tumor, the oncolytic activity differed significantly from tumor to tumor. We destroyed a little bit of tumor, then the danger signal was missing, the cross-priming was ineffective, and I tried to prime this T cell response in this highly immune-suppressive microenvironment, and we didn't see this beyond melanoma very consistently. So I think going for systemic vaccination now against non-self, delivering multiple targets actually to lower the likelihood of tumor escape, multiple HLA peptide complexes that even if HLA-A is down-regulated, they still be targets and we see a very broad T cell response in these patients right now. Uh, so I think it's uh, hopefully providing therapeutic benefit in future for more patients independent of the mass in the tumor. All right. So, Karen, let's reset the clock. Wonderful. Um, <laughs> Karen, are you, are you limiting your cell engagement to just one target? What gives you the confidence that your approach mounts a sufficient immune response here? Um, for the audience who have heard me in the past, I say for vaccine development, my slide, we can induce immune responses in any mouse and cure cancer in the mice. In the monkey, it's a different story. Many of the vaccine technologies I tested in mouse actually failed to induce T cell responses in monkey. J&J actually published a nice paper in 18 showing that the monkey is a very good species for predicting potency of the vaccine, not the tumor response, but the vaccine potency driving T cell responses. And we combined it in the monkey, our vaccine, with model antigens, non-self antigens, in the context of immune modulation and uh, now are in the low percentage, 5% of antigen-specific T cells induced in the non-human primate with overnight Elispot. Uh, we are not you know, amplifying the T cells in the dish over two weeks. And our initial clinical data suggest we try the same in, in patients. Chuck, your response? Monkeys are easy to vaccinate if you use heterologous prime boost, and um, multiple groups have demonstrated um, responses to various vaccine constructs 
heterologous prime boost with adenoprime and different boosts or LCMV, uh, CMV uh, vectors. They do. They do make beautiful responses in, in, in monkeys. However, in patients treated with uh, specific cancer vaccines, the data for robust CD8 T-cell responses are really relatively weak. Even with some of the new technologies, we all saw the data from NEON in which they used a personalized vaccine. And what we saw there from a CD8-targeted vaccine with CD8-predicted peptides was not a CD8 response. And I urge you to read the Nature paper if you uh, didn't read it carefully. What you see there are, in fact, CD4 responses, actually. So I would say that, yes, I totally agree that you can make beautiful responses in monkeys and maybe in humans, but we really haven't seen that yet, uh, I would say, with any of the, the vaccine platforms in, in general. I have a minute now. No, right? no, so no, 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 that's it. <laughs> I have to be quiet. Uh, okay. Oh, that was it. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> I already had an argument. You, you already, uh, save it. Okay, so Chuck, <laughs> flip side, Chuck. Yes. How do you know that, your, that the schmutz is always going to do something when you inject it in the tumor? It will actually have a, the priming effect. What, what's the dip that you the, the, the worst word in oncology is no. Right? So when your patient comes to you and say, how do you know this is going to work? I always say, we don't know. We never know. If we knew this wouldn't be oncology, it would be an exact science. So it's not an exact science, and we don't know, actually. But I think that experiments are in place now with multiple uh, different agents uh, to try to figure out the right combination of um, uh, agents for intratrumoral injection to lead to a better response. Um, some of the early generation uh, uh, agents really just used GMCSF or GCSF, uh, things like that. I think that we're far beyond that now um, with polytargeted reagents. Uh, but I would, I would concede, actually, that the word no is very hard, actually. And we will know when we see these things reliably shrink 100% or 90% of injected tumors and potentially even induce subscopal responses in the right patients. Karen, do you have 10 seconds plus actually, your I've, minute? Uh, okay, so <laughs> actually to the previous comment that Jack made uh, mentioning NEON, what we need to get right in the neoantigen vaccine space is we need to be able to predict neoantigens, the epitopes uh, presented on the tumor accurately, and then we need powerful vaccine platforms. And I think we're probably, uh, NEON fell short was on the vaccine. It's a peptide vaccine. I think probably the field has generated plenty of data demonstrating peptides induce low CD4 T-cell titers that has been described in the paper. Awkward was that basically we predict class one and they induced low-level CD4s, no therapeutic benefit. We see overnight ALIS, but we see CD8s. And actually we dissect CD4s versus CD8s. We see the uh, the maturity of the T-cell responses against the neoantigens right now in our patients are CD8s, which we saw in the monkey, we see in the patient overnight early spot in the thousands. So I think uh, the monkey for us has been a good species for pressure testing the regimen. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about um, some of the challenges of all the approaches. Karen, logistically your process requires some steps. Um, could you Tell us how practical that would be. Yeah, I, when I listened to Carl yesterday, you know, um, Critstone, uh, Critstone was founded at the very end of 15. My lab was built in 16. We had an IND in 18, and we dosed patients in 19. That's fast. I was in Big Pharma and moved a cancer vaccine into clinic in six years. So we kind of 
moved. Uh, so um, we had IND clearance, we are dosing patients now in my team and in the rest of the process development now we are working on improving the process. Uh, automation, uh, release assays, rapid release assays to make the vaccine faster, better, uh, and, and uh, cheaper. So I think, as Carl mentioned yesterday, what, you know, the COX today or the turnaround time will not be the same in a couple years, and we are already moving the needle in the right direction. And just for context, right now and what do you think you can get uh, it to? It's interesting. We are all using very, very different vaccine platforms since you mentioned BioNTech and Neon before. We all start with about 16, 18 weeks mm -hmm. and that's not driven by vaccine manufacturer. That's actually the release assays that we need to perform on a patient-specific manner. Therefore, our focus is really rapid release assays. We already actually got a green light for one, uh, for the adenovirus for rapid release assay and we are just working on the uh, longest release essays to turn them around more quickly. Okay. But Chuck, on the timing what, and the process. Well, I, I would actually um, submit that the elephant in the room is something that you mentioned quite nicely, and that is the prediction algorithm. Uh, every uh, company uh, and individual in this space has their own flavor of prediction algorithm, and it's actually impossible. It's impossible to compare these because they're all proprietary, and then they also use different platforms in the vaccine space. So even if you ran the same prediction algorithm and you did the vaccine with long peptides uh, adjuvanted with polyICLC versus a heterologous prime boost versus an encapsulated RNA, it would be very challenging to know what the correct strategies are. But one thing that we do know is that the strategies are very, very far from perfect, actually. Uh, data from multiple groups, including a company that you might have heard called Genosha, uh, shows that patients make very few responses to predicted algorithms, actually. And so I think that that's a big step of the personalized vaccine that really remains to be worked out. Okay. Yeah, currently we actually see PrEP, and we see we deliver 20 neoepitopes, as Roman mentioned yesterday, in the vaccine. We do see very nice press of the immune response. Chuck had just responded to you, but okay. I'm, I'm going to go up. Uh, okay. Chuck. No, you're after me. <laughs> so, Chuck, you, you, you're, you're not. Uh, uh, you have your own. Uh, the institute has its own uh, challenges. Uh, you have. Um, you need to find a tumor to inject. You need. To, there's operator operator variability. The site, etc. How do you help maintain consistency and control? The, 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 your point is well taken. Uh, intratumoral injection is not simple. Um, and it's actually also um, really, frankly, not, the, not well trained or well taught. Um, when we do phase one trials at Columbia, we have a case we do intratumoral sting, for example. Uh, a patient comes in with a vulvar cancer to one of our sarcoma doctors, well equipped to inject a vulvar lesion in a patient with an intratumoral vaccine. So I do agree that there are challenges with intratumoral injection. There's other challenges which you're not mentioning. There's challenging of hydrostatic pressure, mm -hmm. uh, the appropriate amount of antigen. And I, I agree that these are all major challenges, actually. But what I would submit is that if an intratumoral vaccine not as a monotherapy, but mostly likely in combination with systemic uh, immune checkpoint blockade, particularly CTLA-4, um, was to reliably lead to obscopal responses in a significant fraction of patients, these hurdles would be found a way to overcome. 
Karen, you can address that now. Yeah, but it's still simpler to give an IM injection, right? I mean, our patients get IM injections. It's a couple minutes. It's not uh, even uh, anti-CTLA-4 goes sub-Q. This is not the slow <laughs> infusion of uh, immune modulation. What we also have shown really that you can lower the dose of the immune modulators, uh, hopefully to provide their benefit without the side effect profile that we all have seen in clinic in our patients with systemic delivery of these immune modulators. Also importantly, compared to 10 years ago, we thought we should go systemic because there's all these lymphoid organs and we can prime better T cell responses. And, uh, and we hit very quickly the MTD because it's very dilutional if you give a virus. <laughs> Systemically, so going into the muscle, we can actually come in with a very robust dose of the virus. It makes a lot of antigen, and the durability of the antigen manufacturing facility now, which is the muscle, is actually leading to quite durable T cell responses. Okay, so we want to take a second to talk about economics here. Um, and not just think of it today, but also frame it at what the what the cost of therapy could be into the future. Chuck, uh, can you argue how in-situ vaccinations can deliver value to the patient? I mean, you know, as it's easy to imagine how an off-the-shelf product that can be rapidly given to the majority of patients with injectable lesions uh, would definitely um, wind up being um, more economical than a, a product that requires customiz customization from every step, from the biopsy to the sequencing to the AI to the generation of the vaccine. So it's easy to imagine. And the other thing I would like to point out, actually, in response to what my friend just said, actually, is, yes, the injection is easy, but that's also preceded by a biopsy um, which has to be sufficient and which also um, the, the which time is frame. a routine biopsy. Uh, routine, so, I'm, so, so I'm actually in the Nothing clinic. Nothing extraordinary. Routine is routine until someone drops a lung or bleeds into their peritoneum. And I can tell you that we do, our phase one group at Columbia does, quote, unquote, routine biopsies. And we have a complication about every two weeks or so, actually. So routine is routine until something happens, actually. Karen, same question to you. How, how does your approach to liver value? Um, I think is that um, cancer vaccines, the space uh, will be the adjuvant setting, right? And therefore, I think we can deliver the vaccine to the majority of the patients who have enough uh, uh, neoantigens to deliver in the vaccine. Um, and as I just mentioned, we are driving down cost of goods turnaround time, uh, and we should see therapeutic benefit if conception. I think it's, it's we are now at the stage for the first time where cancer vaccines can really be tested for their potency. And um, AXA said this morning that we all saw teaser responses in the past, but it didn't do anything. We really never saw the T-cell responses. We couldn't find them, and we said they must be in the tumor because we never found them in the blood. Now, at least we have reached the first stage to induce these T-cell responses in the blood, and we, we will see if they drive tumor responses while we are working on driving down cost of goods and turnaround time. Okay. And now a, a quick fire question here. So, Chuck, with in situ. Talk to us about the abscopal effect. Do you get them? Do you believe in them? <laughs> so I was uh, tasked, actually, at the uh, ASTRO meeting, the American Society of Radiation Oncology, to give a talk on the quote-unquote science behind the abscopal effect. And I can tell you that uh, in preparing for that talk, I searched the literature very carefully. And there are, in fact, a handful 
of documented yeah. obscopal effects in the world, actually. They're really uh, quite rare. Um, in animal models, they are far less rare, hence the many papers on obscopal effects in mice. Uh, obviously, there's many differences. In mice, the tumors that you implant side by side are completely homogeneous, yeah. where that's not the case in, in humans. Um, uh, and I can also tell you that when most of these done, our studies are done with radiation, uh, which, as I mentioned this morning, for the people here, that induces regulatory T cells. However, what I would say in, in, in response to that, um, that the, the notion, that very notion that there's an adaptive regulatory response suggests that the correct combination is probably not PD-1. It's probably anti-CTLA-4. And if you look in the literature, there's better um, documentation for anti-CTLA-4-mediated obscopal effects uh, than, than, than with PD-1. So I think it is possible to see obscopal effects in patients. I think that they haven't been seen reliably yet, but that would be an aspirational goal for intratrumal vaccination. Karen, something to add for the neoantigen side? Well, it's too early. As I just mentioned, very few of us uh, have driven activated T cell responses in the periphery, so no T cell, which is the effect arm of a vaccine, no, no, no effect systemically. Uh, we see the T cell responses right now in our patients. It's too early to say. Uh, but I think what's very, very important in the power of cancer vaccine is also we, we uh, induce press of T cell responses against multiple of the neoepitopes. Uh, so we, we should be capturing multiple of the metastatic lesions. Also, anti-CTLA-4 has shown in a vaccine setting, besides just lifting the T cell number, uh, also to increase the press. So I think a potent cancer vaccine with CTLA-4 and then also PD-1 to keep the T cells active at the tumor microenvironment, uh, we expect to see actually anti-tumor effects in, in multiple of the lesions. All right, it's time for some closing remarks. So let's put uh, two minutes up on the, uh, on the clock then. Chuck, let's start with you. Um, closing remarks, why is this an exciting time? What are you looking forward to in the future with Institute Vaccine? I think this is a, an exciting time, but also, uh, um, as we mentioned this morning, a sort of a pause and think time. I think that we've um, uh, seen many different approaches, and I think that we've very rarely seen evidence for um, an off-target effect reliably being induced. I think the knowledge of biology suggests that there are multiple uh, ways to activate the immune response to a tumor from within the tumor, um, but the systemic blockade of checkpoints is probably important. What I can tell you is I'm becoming slightly skeptical that PD-1 is the right agent, though. Um, data from Rafi Ahmed's group uh, and from other group is evolving that with anti-PD-1, you generate an effective response at the expense of memory, actually. And so perhaps we need to rethink the combination therapy. And as proof of that concept, I can tell you that there have been over 60 trials uh, with radiation plus anti-PD-1 designed to induce an obscopal effect. And you've all heard about the positive results. Oh, no, you haven't, actually, because it's very, very, it's, it's just not something that's happening. So the, com the notion that adding anti-PD-1 to something either local being radiation or intratrumal effect and reliably indu inducing obscopal effects is probably sim simple-minded. The enthusiasm, I would say, is that the, the best T cells are within the tumor itself. I agree with my good friend, Dr. Use that activating them reverse intolerance is, is a challenge. But I think with the modern um, uh, knowledge of what's in the tumor and the different cytokines, IL-12, IL-15, um, uh, TLR agonists, I think that there's a possibility that will occur. I do concede all the challenges to intratumoral injection, hydrostatic pressure, localizing lesion, things like that. But as my friend Jed Wolchuk at um, Memorial said, if this works reliably, 
our interventional radiologists will be able to do this. And I'll just finish with 20 seconds left, and you could have it. My so two minutes and 20 seconds. Kevin, take us home. Tell us what, uh, what's got you excited and close, this, uh, close the debate. Um, I'm doing this for 20 years. I never found CDAT cell responses with overnight ELIS bots to anything we delivered in a vaccine, full stop. <laughs> uh, so I'm excited that we are at the stage for driving high CDAT cell responses against non-self on the tumor. This is exciting. We use immune modulators a little bit more like nature has, uh, probably uh, applied them locally at the training lymph node, not high dose uh, systemically. The same is true for cytokines local is where the action is with the TSA activation and we are finally in the position to actually also answer the question uh, in, in our patients and we presented that at IOS more last year we are inducing de novo TSA responses against neoantigens that we actually discovered and there was no pre-existing immune response and we boost what's already there in the patient so we will be able to actually answer who is doing the job in the tool at the end of the day when we get the tumors and can pull out the T-cells. Having talked to vaccinologists recently in the infectious disease field, they say, we are you know, looking over the fence in oncology why you are trying to reactivate something that is half dead in the body, right? So they actually said delivering some, as a, an antigen that the immune system has not seen with a powerful vaccine should actually result, and this is what we see in the monkey, in highly functional, polyfunctional killer T cells that should do a much better job than something half dead that you try to bring back to life. So I think, so I close with that. All right. Well, I, I think this has been a great debate. Thank you both for your spirited comments. And I think you might still walk off as friends. So. I hope you enjoyed the podcast from the IO 360 2020 conference. The next IO 360 meeting will take place virtually February 23rd through 26, 2021. For more information, visit www.io360summit.com.